From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, this is my last Lexicon Valley episode for Slate before we move to Booksmart. And for this last Slate show, I want to indulge myself a bit while hopefully diverting you. It won't surprise a lot of you who've been with me for a while. I want to finally just do a valentine to my favorite language on earth, and that is not English. It is Russian. What gets me so much about this one language that, of course, I did not grow up with? I have had no cultural experience with it in terms of living there or something like that. What is it about Russian? And you know what the real reason is? I could say something about wanting to get to know the souls of people in Moscow, etc. I could say that it was because I wanted access to the literature, which is partly true. But you know, the truth is that languages for me, to an extent, are my sports. And one of the things I like so much about Russian is that it's like Mount Everest. It's just so damn hard. And I want to get across to you a little bit of why it is and why that hard would be something that somebody would enjoy, like, you know, messing with a tooth that's about to come out and enjoying the pain or, you know, like, frankly, have you ever tasted your own blood? I I think most of us have. I've ventured that with earwax here and been told that most people haven't. I've tried mine, but blood, yeah, how it tastes. Well, you know, Russian is really hard in a way that gives pleasure. And it's true that I first became interested in Russian way back in 1988 when I first read Anna Karenina, because I was curious about what this book Anna Karenina was that people seemed to be talking about all the time. And I read it in English, but I really enjoyed it. Wasn't any Pavirin Folikonsky. It was the Constance Garnett. And I'm sitting there reading it. And these people became so real to me that I remember I was sitting on a bench in Washington Square. This is spring of 1988. And the person next to me saw that I was reading that book. And she just said to me, oh, look, Anna and Vronsky are over there. And I looked up and actually expected to see them. They had become that real to me. But then when you enjoy a book that much and you're clinically insane, the way I am, then if it's in translation, you think to yourself, well, I wonder what it really was. Like, I liked all these sentences. I was enjoying the things they were saying. But what did Tolstoy really write? So I started teaching myself, and it was slow. Fits and starts. Me on that bench is 1988. It was 2002 when, reading actually that book in Russian, I realized that I could do it more or less without a dictionary and that I was just seeing it instead of decoding it. It took a while. And even then, you know, I spoke like a chimpanzee. Now I can speak Russian like a rather talented and vocal chimpanzee. But goodness gracious, I don't care how much the language hurts me because it is language nerd heaven. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Let's take just the opening of Anna Karenina, the famous remark that, you know, all happy families are alike, they're like one another, but all unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. Okay, so, all happy families are alike one to another. All unhappy families are unhappy in their own ways. So, everything was kind of cooking at the Oblonsky's house. Everything was kind of going to shit. Because the woman, the wife, found out that her husband was in a connection, in a liaison, with the Frenchity governess who had been living in their house. So the wife explains to her husband that she cannot live with him in one house. So, all happy families are alike. All unhappy families are unhappy in different ways. Everything was cooking at the Oblonsky's house. The wife found out that the husband was in a relationship with the Frenchity governess living with them. And she announced, she told the husband that she cannot live with him in one house. So just in that very beginning, there are all these things where the language, and I say this with great love for the language, the language says to an English speaker, just fuck you. And so, for example... First two words, sie Okay, you hear that? What is that sound? This is what it is. I can go e, I can go u. E, u. They're the same thing except one's up front, e, and the u is in the back. But what about the middle? There's always the middle. Frankly, things are usually the middle. So if I go e, stop it in the middle, e, that little sound, that is that's actually a sound in Russian. You have to be able to do it. In English, it sounds like you're trying to get something out of your throat or you're trying to imitate a spider. That's what Lucy used to do on I Love Lucy. She'd go, ooh, like that. In Russian, that's an ordinary sound. And it's not just in weird little words. It's in the pronouns. So you, not t, not tu, but you have to be able to do that. Okay. Thank you, Russian. Then, all happy families. So, e, 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 on those three words. Plural is indicated with three different sounds. So, if you deal with Spanish, which is just, it's very loving to the second language learner who speaks something like English. You've got like the White Houses, las casas, Blancas. How hard could that be? But in Russian, eh, eh, e, and you just kind of have to know there are many different plurals, and they're going to pop up even when you say something as compact as every happy family. Then there's something that really is just a magnificent kick in the head. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So, kajdia nishaslivia, that's unhappy, nishaslivia, simya, family is unhappy in its own way. Is unhappy is nishasliva. The first time, it's nishasliva. The second time, it's nishasliva. Why? 
Because with an adjective, it's different if it's before the noun as opposed to if it's a predicate. For those of you who know a little bit of school book grammar, attributive adjective, the red book, predicative adjective, the book is red. So, attributive unhappy, unhappy family is nishaslivaya simya. But if the family is unhappy, then the family is nishaslivaya. And it's a different form, and the accent is different. It just does that to you, and you find yourself just in awe. It's like when Star Wars first came out, and first of all, it was originally called Star Wars. There's the back shift. And just to see the opening credits, that was a special effect at the time. Well, nishaslivaya, nishaslivaya. And the fact that there are people who actually speak this language without effort. Absolutely amazing. Then little things like the wife found out. Jina uznala. Okay. Now, if I were the wife... And let's say that that meant that I was a husband. Let's say I was a muj. Then it would be muj uznal. That's find out. But if you're a woman, uznal doesn't work. Uznala. In other words, you've even got gender on the verbs in Russian. If you're used to romance languages, you know that French does a little of that. But in Spanish, not in that way. Whereas in Russian, if you're in the past, you have to indicate whether it's masculine or feminine. Jina Uznala, not just Jina, Uznal. Then there's case, and that means that Russian is one of those languages like Latin and Greek, where to put it in a really goofy way, the nouns conjugate <laughs> just like the verbs. You have to know all these endings. And so the husband was in a liaison. So muj bul, notice that muj bul vsiazi. The husband was in, you know, connections with this governess. Muj. But then a little while later, the wife, Abhyavila Muju, she tells the husband, Muju, the U is because she's telling it to him. You have to stick that little thing on there. And of course, that little thing is different depending on what flavor of noun it is. And to an extent, you just have to master this. Russian just gives you this. And then, of course, there's irregularity all over the place. It is Mount Everest. And finally, just a little thing like, she can't live with him in one house. Vadnom domje, in one house. Vadnom domje. Now, you would think that if you're talking about one house and you're thinking about Spanish and like casa blanca, house white, well, then it would be something like vadnom domom. Or if it's going to be domje, it's going to be vadnje domje. No, vadnom domje. Both of them are for locations in one house. But if it's an adjective, like the one is here, then you have om. But then on the noun itself, it's yeah. This just goes on and on. So you have to think about this sort of thing. You know, how far are you going to get with something like Duolingo, you know, with all due respect, with a language that presents you with this much? You just have to be immersed in it. You've got to really have a, a whole lot of input to get this right and not have a stroke while you're speaking it. It's this language where, frankly, it's like it's got a whip and it's, it's beating you into submission. It's like you're taking orders from it. It's like it's 1935 and there's a song nobody cares about even then called I'd Love to Take Orders from You, written by Harry Warren and Al Dubin. And it's as if because it's played in Looney Tunes and in a really ancient musical that nobody cares about called Shipmates Forever, that you love this song and you've 
loved it for a very long time, and you feel like for your last Slate episode, playing the person who introduced it, Al Jolson, actually singing it over 80 years ago. So that's the explanation for the quality here. This is him doing it on the radio. This is I'd Love to Take Orders from You, and I do mean you. If you're the captain, I'll be the crew, and I'd just love to take orders from you. Okay, what else? Well, Russian is all about aspect. And those of you who've been listening for even a little while know that I discussed the difference between tense and aspect in a show fairly recently. Slavic is all over aspect. So, think about French and Spanish. And for we English speakers, one of the weirdest things is that difference between the imperfect and the preterite. And so, they were studying over a long period of time when the bell rang. Boom! So, estudiaban, and so iaban, that's an imperfect ending. Cuando sonó la campana, when sounded the bell, boom. Sonó, that o is a different set of endings. Imperfect versus preterite. That which was going on, and then bada boom. Preterite, it happened. That difference in pasts, as we think of it, is not really a difference in pasts. The preterite is the past tense. The imperfect is aspect. So not when it happened, but in what way it was happening, and especially whether it was continuous or bada-boom. Thing is, in Russian, that distinction is very much cooked into the language too, much more explicitly than in English, but they do it in a more complicated way. They do it with a prefix on the verb instead of with these endings on the verb. And at first it seems pretty easy because that prefix is the same for I, you, he, she, it, we, y'all, and they. And so I was writing, you know, I was walking along, writing a book, and so pisal, pisal. And then I wrote a letter, bada boom, na pisal, you have to put the na. So I was writing when the bell rang, ya pisal when the bell rang. But then I wrote a letter, I scratched down a letter, na pisal, right there. So it's na. So you think, well, you know, no big whoop, just nah. But then try another verb. So I was reading, it was a long day, I was just sitting there, chital, chital. Okay, I read the book and I finished it. I took that book and I read its ass, and I finished it. Not just chital, prachital. Now, it's not nachital, like it was with napisal with the writing, prachital. Why? You just have to know. And there's a whole series of these prefixes. And sometimes the difference is one that makes sense to us because we use different words for the so-called imperfect and the preterite one. Znala, that is a woman saying that she knew. Znala. Uznala is the wife in Anna Karenina, the wife who found out that her husband was doing what he was doing. But she didn't znala, she Uznala. That means that you're knowing I've known for a long time that two plus two equals four. But then, bada boom, I know, I found out that my husband was cheating. Znala, uznala. 
but not Naznala, not Praznala, Uznala. You have to know. And they just go on and on. There's a whole collection of these, and you have to know which one to use to make it the bada boom. And then on top of that, a lot of them can have specific meanings. And so not only are you bada booming, but you're lending a nuance. And so you start to master this sort of thing. So, for example, pisats, that's for writing. And notice, I didn't say pisat. I said pisat, pisat. You have to stick that little y at the end. And if you don't, you sound like an idiot. So pisat, that's moose from the Archie comic books trying to learn Russian. Wrong voice for moose. Let's try this. Pisat. Okay, that's the best he could do. But really, it has to be pisat, pisat. It's, it, you, you start to enjoy doing it, but God, it's called the soft sign. I don't find anything soft about it. It should be called the arbitrary punishing sign. In any case, writing, pisat. But not pisat, as I said, is to write something down. Piripisats, that means to write it again. So, you know, pisal, okay. Then piripisa, I wrote it down again. Bada boom. Pisats, da pisats, that's to finish writing, because da means until. You can pisats, you can spisats, because the s, just little s, means from. And so that means copy. You're writing from something, you know? And then there's pisats, zapisats. Zapisat means to scribble it down, like to write it down real fast. And frankly, I don't know what za means. It confuses me. It worries me. We'll pass it by. Or vipisats. Vipisats. V is out. And so you write out of something. You excerpt. So you have all those. But then there's something else. Every time you add one of those prefixes, you're making it bada boom. So suppose you're bada booming it. But then also you're giving it this meaning, like to write it again or something like that. Suppose you want to write something again or scribble it down or copy it, but then over a long period of time, because you don't always just copy something once. Sometimes your whole job is copying, like whatever they're doing where Scrooge works and you can't get off for Christmas, you can tell a lot of it is copying. Well, they're doing it a lot. Suppose you want to do it over time. Well, then you have this ending that you use to make it imperfect, so to speak. So, you know, I'm just kind of looking, gazing, smatriets. Okay. Oh, I took a look. Bada boom. Pasmatriets. Right there. Okay, but suppose I want to like take lots of looks. Suppose I'm driving and I keep taking looks in the mirror. So patsmatriets, but I'm doing it over time. It's kind of like the students who are studying over time. I'm taking a look in the mirror. Or there's that woman who you keep taking a look at across the room in Albuquerque in an alternate version of how you met her. How would you do that? You're not just patsmatriets, you're patsmatrilats. That means that you bada boom something over a period of time. And so you have to have that too. You know what? I want to make sure you know I'm not misrepresenting myself. I have been told by somebody that when I speak Russian, I sound like a child. And they say it affectionately. But just to show you, I'm not showing off. I'm just trying to show you one of my toys. We linguists know about languages, even if we speak them like childs. Always very important to know that that is what I'm trying to indicate. This brings us, which it doesn't, but it's just time to get this in, to Slate Plus, which is that you can listen to these shows in a different way. You can hear it with one 
no ads. Plus, you get a tag of extra information after the show. What you do is you go to slate.com slash lexicon plus. And these days we have a special offer. You get the whole thing for just a dollar for the first month. And then you can get extra episodes if you sign up for Slate Plus of Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. And those are very important shows. So please sign up for Slate Plus. You get an enhanced experience and you also help Slate out in these troubled times. It's time for another clip. This is 1930. It's not going to go on too long because I warn you, this one is antique again and perhaps not as charmingly as the last one would be to at least some people. This is Rudy Valley, who was, you know, once Drake and now he's utterly forgotten. And it's 1930, which is a very long time ago. He's singing a ballad called A Little Kiss Each Morning. And I won't give you too much of this one, but it makes me think and I've always liked it each morning and each night. We'll be so happy, we'll always sing, if we remember one little thing, a little kiss each morning, a little kiss each night. Who cares if hard luck may be ahead, an empty cupboard, a crust of bread, I'm sitting here talking about how hard Russian is, and a very natural question would be, why is it so hard? Why does a language do this? Does it have something to do with being Russian? And, you know, no, that's not it at all. The question is not why Russian is so hard, but why English is comparatively easy. And of course, no language is easy, but English is easier than Russian. Why is that? And the truth is, it's really not what we think. It's not that Russian is hard, it's that English is weird. That is one of my most treasured insights, and it wasn't mine. It is Stefan Goyette, who's also a linguist, I don't think he listens to this, who first made me think of things this way. And you want people who can blow your mind. It's the counterintuitive that makes science fun. And this is something that has driven a lot of how I look at language. And it really is that a language left to its own devices becomes something which, from the perspective of English, seems almost maddeningly difficult. So if you've got a feminine noun, and of course it doesn't mean only things that are biologically feminine, just things. A car is feminine. Machina, okay. Machina. Now, if you're talking about like the color of the car, then you add an ending. Machine. It's that uh again. Even with a little ending, you have to do that weird little sound. So machine. Okay, fine. And you can think of the uh as just the equivalent of of, and it's just that they use a suffix. All right. But then if you want to say the color of the cars, and so it's of but more than one thing, it's not machine or machine or machine cuckoo or something like that. It's that you don't have an ending. So the color of the car is the color machine. The color of the cars is the color machine and then nothing. Machine. It's almost like it's trying. And the thing is, Languages are like this. So in the Indo-European family that begins on the steppes of Ukraine, Latin is like that. Greek is like that. Lithuanian is definitely like that. Old Persian was very much like this. Sanskrit is like this. Old English was pretty much like this. And Icelandic still is. And so 
We have English the way it is now, and we're told that it's because languages simplify over time, that Old English was like Latin, but that it was natural for Old English to just kind of take it easy because of the Enlightenment or penicillin or something. But that's not really the way things work. If it were just natural for languages to simplify, then wouldn't all of them be dust by now? What makes a language like English, as I've said on this show before, is when a language has a whole lot of adults learn it at a certain point. Adults aren't as good at learning languages as children, and so it wears the language down. Not to dust, but to something that it would not be if it had been allowed to mind its own business. Modern English is what happened when Vikings came and beat the hell out of Old English. Spanish is less fearsome than Latin. Fearsome, but less. And that's because Latin was imposed on people who had their own languages, thank you very much, many of whom were grown-ups. This never happened with Slavic. Slavic is the way languages normally are. And so actually, the truth is, Slavic is a family, and the other Slavic languages are harder. It's funny. So Melania Trump's Slovenian, that's another one of the Slavic family, technically subfamily of Indo-European. And Slovenian has what's called a dual. So not only are things singular and plural, but then you have a whole other set of endings if they're just two of things. Or if you have occasion to work with or actually try to learn Polish or Czech, you find that, wow, like if you already know some Russian, you think this is even harder than Russian. That's the impression that you have. There's only one Slavic language that gives you any kind of break in this way, and that's Bulgarian. For some reason in Bulgarian, the case endings are gone. So, so to speak, the nouns don't conjugate anymore. Nobody knows just what happened to Bulgarian. Something must have happened to Bulgarian. I've always wanted to, you know, retire and work on figuring that out, but I'm sure that somebody smarter than me will have figured it out by then. But then in Bulgarian, the verbs are just as bad as in Russian, if not worse. And please understand that there is no actual value judgment. But I mean, basically, that in Bulgarian, it's just as much a matter of climbing almost vertically into the sky like on Mount Everest as with Russian. Now, you might think, wait a minute, hasn't Russian been spread around quite a bit? Like Bulgarian seems to be minding its own business, but Russian has been imposed on a great many people. And yes, that's true, but most of that has happened via education, formal education. Russian has been imposed on most of those people in a school setting. So there have been all sorts of ways that Russian has surely been spoken by people who it was imposed upon when they're adults, but it hasn't made it to paper. If somebody who's using Russian as a second language has to write it down to represent their version of Russian in their society, then it comes out the way Russian does in Moscow because Russian has been taught all over the place. And now there's Russian media all over the place. Whereas with Old English, when the Vikings started beating it up, writing was for a very elite group of people. There was essentially no such thing as school and no such thing as media. It was an oral world. And in an oral world, more dramatic things can happen more quickly than when writing holds things back. I mean, frankly, it's all very much like a lullaby and rhythm which it isn't, but I want to play this clip. It's my favorite clip of the wonderful Art Tatum, and it makes me very happy. It's just so close and warm. It's the sort of thing that you should give people as gifts. This is Lullaby in Rhythm.
And, you know, another interesting thing about Russian is that you learn about how languages get standardized in similar ways all over the world. You find something so exotic from your perspective, but then you get these certain stories that are the same. And so, for example, there was a time when the Latin of the Slavic group, which was called Old Church Slavonic, that was what you wrote. And then Russian was something that you just talked, just like the ancestors of Polish and and everything else. So you wrote in Old Church Slavonic, Russian was just something oral that you chopped potatoes and died in. There were all sorts of dialects of it, different ones spoken in Moscow, a bunch of different ones spoken in Kiev. The ones spoken in Kiev were the prestigious ones for a while. Very much like for a very long time, you wrote in Latin and then you spoke in French or Spanish, and nobody would have dared put French and Spanish on the page in any real way. Old English was that way, too, for a long time. It's become increasingly clear. Real English was English with things like, do you go to school? Do you play the clarinet? Of course, they wouldn't have been talking about that. But all sorts of things that are typical of the modern language rather than Old English, all those things would have happened while you still wrote in this antique version on the page. That was normal then, and it still is now. Languages like Tamil, languages like Indonesian, the way you write and the way even educated people speak casually are vastly different. And so that was the situation, quite normal. Then Peter the Great wanted the language to be more cosmopolitan. He wanted it to face westward, and he wanted to do this without the language relying so much on French. So in, for example, War and Peace, you know, sometimes the book seems half French because the people in it would have used so much French in their lives with Russian as the casual language that you used with servants. But this meant if Russian was going to be a language that could fulfill all domains, then you have to create things out of whole cloth. And so, for example, Nikolai Karamzin, he was a historian, but he also, like many historians in that time, had a linguistic bent, and he created a lot of vocabulary that wasn't there before. So, for example, to develop, we get that from French, développer. So, de is to un, to undo. Vloppé is to wind, like a watch. So, it's something unwinding, développeing. Well, he created the word today, razvitya. Raz is the un, and the vitya is the winding, razvitya. So today in Russian, ordinary Russian, that's development. But you needed to create words like that so that people wouldn't just say développé and have what many people thought of at the time as a somehow artificial Russian. In English, nobody had any problem with that, and so we just say develop. But Peter the Great wanted something that was more local than that. So you had all sorts of little things, and sometimes it created things that didn't make any sense, just like standardization has in English. So, for example, many people insist on saying often instead of often because the T is on the page. Quite understandable. But then you don't talk about whistling a happy tune, so it's kind of arbitrary. But there are ways that Russian spelling holds back on what people ordinarily would have said too. So, for example, you look up in the sky, and the sky is nyeba. It's a nyeba. Now, the way that word had developed on its own was nyoba. If you had a y and then a following e, then it became o. So, nyoba. That's kind of what it should be. And in a great many words in Russian with that same y, e, it is now yo. But standardization said, no, nyoba is wrong. We're going to say nyeba. And so that's how you have to say sky. Now, nobody cared that the word for sky was also used for the palate. 
You can understand that. The palate is kind of the sky of your mouth. Well, they let that go. So you don't talk about the nyeba in your mouth. You talk about the nyoba. The nyoba. That was allowed to go on by itself. But for the sky, it's a nyeba. Here is one salute to the five years that I've been hosting this show. We've got to have one more fun backshift. Listen here to how someone said gridlock a very long time ago. Well, I didn't even know I made up a word, Kai. I <laughs> called it two words. I called it gridlock. And 14 years earlier, there was a transit strike, and it was a mess. The police had control of uh, handling the city's response. In 1980, I wanted the traffic scientists to have control. So I needed to to create something that City Hall could could be afraid of. So I called it gridlock. <laughs> two words, and I had a gridlock prevention plan, and soon the media caught on to the word, made it one word, and before you know it, uh, dictionaries, encyclopedias, and others started calling me, where did this word come from? <laughs> now we get to the touching part, which is that this is my last episode of Lexicon Valley for Slate. We are now moving to Booksmart. That's booksmartstudios.org. You'll be getting Lexicon Valley and me and perhaps quirky information, although aimed somewhat more in a topical direction. But it'll be the same show and the same me. And I want to thank Slate for being so accommodating of my schedule and eccentricities over these five years. I want to thank Slate, frankly, for the occasional raises that I got for doing this. And I want to give a special thank you to June Thomas, who was a wonderful colleague. And I also want to say that starting on Tuesday, July 21st, Slate will be premiering a new language podcast with a different name and different hosts. Keep a lookout for it. The final clip for Slate. It is Could It Be I'm Falling in Love, which I've probably played 17 times, but it's one of my very favorite songs in the world, and it actually is serving a purpose. Since I met you, I've begun to feel so strange. Every time I speak your name, that's funny. You say that you are so helpless too. That thing don't. There's someone out there who knows this episode is for her. She's used my shows as lessons for her students, which is the last thing I ever thought these podcasts would be for. And more to the point, she has heard me in these episodes of Lexicon Valley and gotten whatever that person is. I'm elated that she gets me because I get her. Sweetheart, this last Slate show was for you. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Mike Volo has been, as always, the editor, and I have been and will continue to be John McWhorter. And remember, this isn't an ending, but a new beginning. See all of you next, here in the Valley, 
at booksmartstudios.org.